Hello everyone, welcome to the Social Work Stories podcast. I'm Mim Fox and today I'm not joined as usual with my um, lovely co-host Liz Murphy. Today I am instead joined by our good friend of the podcast, Danica Thomas. Danica, hello. Hello. How are you going, Mim? I'm doing really well. It is so good to have you with us again. Yeah, thank you so much. That's okay. Look, um, everyone might remember you from a couple of episodes fairly early on in our podcast. There was one episode we did, I think it was episode 14, where we talked about decolonizing social work practices. Do you remember that one? We definitely did. Yeah, we got into a big discussion there. (laughs) Definitely. It was nice to, to open up that conversation, actually. Yeah, totally. I remember being particularly vulnerable in that conversation. So that was fun for me. <laughs> and then I think you came back and also um, joined us for another episode as well, which was awesome. Yeah. So yeah. you're becoming a regular, Danica. Oh, Loving it. I love it. I love it. <laughs> awesome. Um, and uh, listeners, we asked Danica to join us today because um, we've got a really interesting story by an Aboriginal um, social worker uh, working in a remote setting uh, with some really interesting um, challenges that she's talking about and coming up against in her practice. And so it'll be great to uh, have that discussion with you, Danika, and get some context from your perspective as well. Yeah, absolutely. I look forward to it. There's another point that the social worker brings up, which is around identified positions. And I guess because I'm just really conscious that we have listeners from all over the world. Um, And so uh, just to give some context of what happens in Australia with um, identified positions, um, often uh, within, particularly within government departments, would you say, Danika, these positions exist? Yeah, predominantly government positions, I would say, but I think it's um, something that um, a lot of organisations are trying to um, make the, no- the the new normal yeah. in regards to having an identified position to um, best culturally support Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander community. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I think this social worker does talk about how the aim of those um, identified positions are around being a cultural connecting point um, and holding cultural knowledge, uh, which is, I mean, look, such a useful strategy, you know, in in this sort of landscape, isn't it? I mean, really, really important, although it's really interesting because this story does bring up some of the debate or questions around that. Yeah, absolutely. It's it's definitely a topic that, um, yeah, needs a little bit more airtime. Yeah. I would agree. I would agree. So let's have everyone listen to the story. Enjoy. And we will see you all on the other side. See you later. Hi, um, I'm a social worker. I'm also an Awabakal woman. Um, So I have worked previously in both identified and non-identified positions across New South Wales. Uh, My background is in child protection, sexual assault, working with um, adolescent sex offenders and mental health. Um, I have a a broad understanding of social work practice uh, as well as cultural competencies and um, integration into practice. I think one um, one one of the issues that we see across the board is 
identified versus non-identified and what the differences between those two systems are. So with identified positions, um, the expectation that is clearly documented around community engagement, cultural knowledge and the capacity to negotiate within um, communities, NGOs and clientele, as well as being able to trans translate that information back to your mainstream colleagues at meetings around close the gap, uh, around culturally informed practices and assisting other people to um, identify gaps in services and look for opportunities where we can engage with communities um, as mainstream services as well as Aboriginal services. Whereas in my current position as a social worker in a, in a um, mainstream social work position, uh, I find that I automatically bring that uh, Aboriginal expectations or components across anyway because it's very difficult to separate who you are from what you do. Um, it's, it's just there. Um, so it might not necessarily be part of your job description um, but you find that you automatically incorporate all those additional aspects of cultural practice into your mainstream practice. So one of the things that we um, often see is where, where we interact with a, a particular client or a family, what, what I will do is I come from a cult, look at that situation through a cultural lens and, and work out what can I do to make this particular person or this particular family feel like they're connected to our service? How do we, how do we make a mainstream, um, essentially a white system, feel open and engaging to an Aboriginal family? They may be coming off country um, so that in itself uh, can be very overwhelming and very threatening for a family that is trying to access a service for their loved one where they don't know our system. They don't know where they are, what to expect, who they can trust. So I suppose in the, in the broader scheme of things, what we try and do is look at what we do have that we can offer families, what we don't have and what we can do to mitigate that. So moving along, what I think we can do is maybe have a look at how those systems, the two systems um, interact between each other, um, how as an Aboriginal social worker I can actually work within our two systems to get better outcomes for um, all of my patients. Working with mental health, I have been able to negotiate with patients and psychiatric teams around um, assisting the treating teams to help patients communicate what is cultural versus what is delusional or psychotic. Um, often what we see when we have Aboriginal people with mental health issues is they will have a, an element of cultural or spiritual um, belief systems intertwined with psychotic symptoms or del delusional beliefs. So it, it can be very um, confusing for treating teams to um, identify what is actually 
mental health that needs to be treated. Um, and often I'm asked to sit in to help identify the, the differences between those two areas. An example of this is uh, I had a woman that um, continually talked about prey mantises and the doctors were um, of the belief that she was hallucinating and seeing prey mantises throughout the room. Um, so she had um, become very frustrated with the treating team, kept yelling out, but you don't understand, I'm a prey mantis, I'm a prey mantis, I'm a prey mantis. Um, the doctors were wanting to medicate her um, for this delusion. Um, when I was asked to sit in, I asked where she was from and then was able to inform the, the treating team that it was actually a cultural totem for her language group. So that part was her reality. It was not part of her mental health. It was um, separate to her mental health. So assisting the training teams to break down those uh, various aspects of a person's story can be very beneficial in the sense that the, the doctors are treating the mental health systems, not someone's cultural or spiritual belief systems. Um, I have another gentleman that had a forensic history who uh, would only identify with other Aboriginal people. Um, when he was released from a forensic unit uh, through the uh, justice system, he was discharged into a very remote location with no support services, no medication or access to medication and quite um, obviously failed very, very quickly and ended up in an acute mental health facility. Um, the forensic team and the, the justice system could not understand why this gentleman had relapsed so quickly um, and had asked, well, why wasn't he taking his medication? He was non-compliant. It wasn't that he was non-compliant. He didn't have access to those things, and that wasn't identified when he was discharged into the community. So working with this gentleman, he had asked me um, where I was from. I had told him that I was an Awabakal woman, and he instantly connected and was able to go, yes, I knew it. Um, and from that point, I was able to then communicate with him. He found it very difficult to allow me to communicate with other people who were not Aboriginal, um, as he saw that as a breach of his entitlement or his trust and his respect. He said, but you're one of us. You should only work with me. Um, I had informed him that I am an Aboriginal woman, but I'm also a social worker. So I, therefore I work with everybody, um, it took him a couple of weeks to digest that information and to accept that, but in the end, he was quite happy then for me to work with everybody that I had to work with, but then continued to point me out on our notice board to other Aboriginal patients and um, would often advocate for them to come and talk to me because, you know, aunt will fix it for you. She will do this. She will help you do that. She will help you do this. So he's doing very, very well. We're going to get him into long-term rehabilitation to help him with his daily living skills so he can reintegrate into the community more effectively. Um, and he's also very, very excited about the fact that he's been offered some part-time work where um, he has to get a tax file number, which he didn't even know what that was because he'd never heard of one. He thought it was his Centrelink number. 
Um, he's never worked before in his life, so he wasn't uh, aware of what a tax file number was or did or why he even needed it. So he he's like a kid at Christmas at the moment because he's going to get his very own tax file number and will start working um, in the very near future. So I suppose from, um, from the perspective of working as a social worker in a mainstream position, um, I find it quite interesting. I had a social work student, my very first social work student was also an Aboriginal woman and she has raised some issues that I have felt myself but um, found it very interesting that, again, across the board, the expectation that if you're Aboriginal, you will apply for a identified position versus a mainstream position. And when questioned about that, um, it, it, it's, it's not understood why, why would you not apply for an identified position? You're Aboriginal, so you should be in an identified position. And when you put forward to people that, well, no, I'm an Aboriginal woman, but I'm also a social worker. So I can apply for whatever position I'm qualified for. Um, the, there is a degree of discrimination in the sense that people will sometimes almost um, devalue your qualification because the expectations that maybe you're not quite as up to it as your mainstream colleagues. You're Aboriginal, so you, you can do the cultural stuff, but really they don't want to talk to you about the theories, the um, everything else that goes along with social work. Um, everyone's interested in what we do from an Aboriginal point of view, but not what we do from a social work point of view. Um, even when I'm in my position at the moment, um, I still get questioned, oh, so you're... you're in an identified role. No, I'm in a mainstream role. But why? Um, that can be very frustrating. But on the flip side of that, um, my Aboriginal colleagues that work in AMSs and in the community, they can also get quite um, frustrated. And I've been been told that I've been whitewashed because I chose to do social work and not assert for in Aboriginal mental health which becomes very frustrating um, that I have the right to choose whatever educational pathway I choose and I want to do that because I believe I can make a difference. I believe I can make a difference not just as a social worker but I can advocate for my Aboriginal patients from my own personal cultural knowledge as well as my professional knowledge. So I think that in itself... Um, gives me a really amazing place to start from. I look forward to taking on Aboriginal social work students particularly because I think having that cultural, culturally safe place to explore how your culture fits within the social work um, scheme is critical. And when you don't have an either an on-site supervisor or you don't have access to an Aboriginal supervisor, that can be very, very challenging to work out where you fit in that scheme or, or the scope of practice. Um, I think across, across our system, we need to have um, changes in relation to 
what we study um, when we're studying social work. Like if we have Aboriginal subjects or, or particular case studies, it would be great to have more opportunities to access Aboriginal people in our profession, which do exist, but to be able to utilise their skills and their knowledge um, to present at res schools and various other opportunities so that our um, non-Aboriginal students are getting that first-hand cultural experience and opportunity to ask questions. So I really enjoyed hearing from this social worker, I have to say. Um, I don't know if anyone else picked up the hospital sounds in the background. You could really get a sense of uh, where she was in the story. Absolutely. You could hear every now and then a little beep and go, oh, oh yes, yeah. <laughs> oh, that's right. There's probably a pager going off somewhere or some sort of equipment happening, which, you know, that's how we do it on this podcast, rough and ready. Yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> Welcome to social work. <laughs> that's it. That's it, right? It's, it's, this is not a quiet profession. No, so. <laughs> no you've got to do what you've got to do when you've got to do it. <laughs> That's exactly it, including telling your story. So there you go. Yes, yeah. <laughs> um, uh, and uh, we mentioned the idea of an identified position when we opened the episode and um, hopefully now everyone's got some context around that. But um, this social worker really brought up some interesting uh, points around herself as an Aboriginal woman and herself as a Aboriginal social worker. Yeah, absolutely. And she talked about um, potentially quite a lot of difficulties that are faced in regards to trying to um, hold a profession, but also to hold a cultural profession that is true to her own identity and, and, her, and her cultural ties to her community as well. And so being in, the, being in an identified position opposed to a non-identified position, um, there are similarities, yet... Um, structurally um, it's very different so your job description looks very different yet you are still expected to maintain both spaces quite well. Yeah and I would imagine that that could be easier in some situations than others like maybe sometimes that might affirm your identity being able to label yourself in that way or connect or relate to people in that way but other times maybe it challenges your identity. Oh absolutely Absolutely. I think um, for me as an Aboriginal social worker, I'm working off country. I'm an Awabigal woman. Um, my grandmother um, originates from Curry Curry. So for me, um, I am off country. And um, this poses um, a, a respect that I need to put forth within my practice, knowing that I'm off country and being respectful of the country that I am practicing on. Um, and so potentially being an identified position or non-identified position, this respect needs to be laid as the foundations underneath my practice. Um, so it's, it's something that's continually thought about. I'm, yeah, I'm sure. So does that mean, Danica, that if you're working, if you're off country and you're working with someone who is on country for them, then there's a respect that already has to be um, thought through uh, prior to even engaging with that person. Absolutely. 
Absolutely, yeah. And this is where I think um, as an Aboriginal social worker that's off-country, um, but also a non-Indigenous social worker, um, your connections to the local Aboriginal community is vital in regards to providing the best support possible for um, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people. So therefore you can actually have the guidance of people on country who understand um, the stories, who understand the history and who understand the, the families that, are, that have been living here um, for forever. Um, and so it is, I, as, as a social worker that's off country, I have to also come in and introduce myself and get to know and gain the trust of community um, so therefore I can practice the best way possible. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And um, you could hear in this how knowing the stories and knowing the um, language, how that actually really helped this social worker to not just practice but engage completely and be really present with the people that she was working with. She told a couple of stories where that really came out, didn't she? She did, absolutely. I think it was fantastic how she was able to support um, using her her cultural knowledge, um, particularly um, when looking when she was speaking about um, the client who was um, talking about their, their totem within their language group and how she utilised that knowledge to be able to almost translate to the mainstream world. That's the word that occurred to me. She was actually being a cultural translator in that moment. And I think that would be tricky to, it's a bit of a dance between being a cultural translator and being a professional or being perceived as a professional, I would imagine. In those moments yeah I think it is I yeah I actually I agree it definitely is I think it's quite difficult when um, you are employed as as a social worker particularly if you're in a non-identified position um, because you are given your um, very mainstream job description um, which is you know, wholesome in, in regards to providing the service that you're employed at. But as an Aboriginal social worker, you can't just drop your identity. That, that doesn't happen just because your job description doesn't state this. So there is a bit of a juggle and there's, there's a straddling of the worlds in, in regards to um, how to best support when you have knowledge, yet it's not in your job description. How do you balance that with time management? Um, yeah, with, with your output of energy, it's, it's something that um, I think is, is rather difficult to achieve. And how do you balance that with professional notions like boundaries <laughs> or confidentiality, Absolutely. right? Yeah. Like those yeah. are the things that at, end up being really, really tricky. And they're tricky anyway if you're in a remote community, working in a remote community. I mean, the chance of running into your clients at the pub is really common, right? So, yes. but then when you're in, when you're an Aboriginal social worker working in an Aboriginal community, those networks and ties are going to be that much closer. Absolutely. And when you're known as an Aboriginal social worker, and so this, this Aboriginal social worker that um, you have interviewed um, stated that when she was working with um, a gentleman, once he understood her country and where she was from, it was almost like he was like, nope, I'm only going to now um, work with you. And so that that becomes actually quite difficult in a space, particularly if you've got a really, really large caseload. 
Um, and I'm sure her intention was definitely wanting to work alongside him as much as possible, but she also has to go home. <laughs> she also has to have a lunch break. She, yeah, so, so in regards to, um, you know, identifying, I think it's really important to identify yourself culturally, but even when you're not in an identified position, you have to um, manage it well um, in regards to your time and, and your output of energy. Oh, completely. And they're lessons for all social workers, I think, anyway, regardless. <laughs> I think but, so um, too. <laughs> in any busy setting. But I, I just thought that was really um, an interesting moment when she was talking about how that gentleman would uh, go up to all the Aboriginal patients on the ward and tell them about her or sister will help you and yeah. I just thought that was yeah, yeah. so funny because there she is trying to be unobtrusive and yeah. trying to be professional yeah, <laughs> and there yeah. he is going no come on come on everybody <laughs> and this is and this is absolutely um truth in in how it is because once um some aunties or uncles or um members in the community really understand that you are here to to support and you're able to do it really well and culturally align you're you're a wanted person because the the need is there and so it is it's about once you're known um you will and this is where boundaries are are really important to to you know figure out for yourself where you personally align with your boundaries um but then you will you'll be asked asked upon outside of your position because you're known to be able to provide um, a really supportive service. Yeah, but doesn't that carry a large burden as well? Like I, I think that's a bit, that's a lot to ask of someone actually. Yeah, this I guess this is what Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander um, social workers or actually all professionals sitting in a, a particular position um, carries this this cultural load. Yeah. And that's an interesting phrase, cultural load. Um, I think that's not necessarily a phrase everyone uses all the time. Yeah, yeah. It is, it's, you know, we all, we all carry a load. Every, every one of us carries a load. Um, and this, when we, you know, say cultural load, it is um, predominantly around um, the, the expectations and sometimes seen as burdens, but also sometimes seen as as beautiful as well in regards to our culture that that you know supports us how we behave, how we think, how we act, um, and how we hold ourselves within our community. So it's kind of a grounding or a framing as well of um, not just your practice but your way of being. Absolutely. Yeah. Yes. So maybe then. Yeah, you're right. It's a double-edged sword. It's kind of it's the it's the beautifulness of being able to represent and be authentic and genuine and be an educator and an informant in this space, yes. but also then um, having to be present and having to be the bridge between these worlds. Absolutely, yeah. And and being that person that um, has an expectation to stand up all the time. Um, because I'm in a position, um, I'm in a position of power, um, being a social worker, and that's really important for us all to to really understand that. Um, and so, with that comes responsibilities. Um, and so, I think that's generalised across all social work fields. But then, I have cultural responsibilities that also come alongside with that power I hold. Yeah, it's interesting because power 
um, often comes with education, yeah? And yes. I think so in this situation, uh, the fact that you're a qualified social worker and you've gone through university affords you a level of um, expertise or power in that space. But what this social worker really highlighted was that um, often the perceptions of others can be that that now is negated because you've just gone back to being an Aboriginal woman yes. in that space. Yeah. It's often identity um, overrules everything else about you in a, in a way, um, particularly I think when we're looking at um, a, a dominant white society, if you are anything that is the other than white, um, it's actually sort of stands out like a sore toe in a way. I think, I think that's absolutely right. And I think, um, I think there's uh, so many people from different cultural backgrounds who would be able to attest to that, that uh, you know, it's the, the whitewashing of the worlds in which we practice as social workers. And also, and also the, um, the context in which we have been educated ourselves, uh, the, you know, the lens through which we as social workers view the clients, the issues, the presentations that come before us. Yeah, and having fully qualified um, Aboriginal social workers is going up against a, a particular stereotype as, as well. Um, and so in, in both white and black world. So it's, it's quite a difficult position to sit in um, and be able to fluidly and um, confidently um, engage in your own practice um, in the organisation that you choose to work in without having to combat um, these stereotypes um, and without it coming in and affecting the way that you practice. Do you think it's actually challenging for people that um, Aboriginal people could qualify as social workers? I th it, it is a bit of a question. We, we live in a world that is based on white supremacy um, and, and it's just the reality that we are currently living in, unfortunately. And um, with that white supremacy is um, a lot of power. Um, and so when um, I see that Aboriginal people are put into um, positions of power and alongside, which um, should just be the case, um, alongside other um, non-Indigenous social workers, um, yeah, I think there is a difficulty there um, and often there might be questions around going, oh, they might have got the position because they're Aboriginal rather than action. Yeah, and, and this is um, really unfortunate and quite detrimental um, to, to continue with this belief system. Um, so, yeah, I think um, the social worker that was interviewed, she did touch on this and talked about how she's often only seen as an Aboriginal person rather than actually fully qualified professional. Yeah, it's, that's really hard. I think that's a really hard situation to be in. Um, I, I'm just thinking about our social work students who are listening and our um, non-Indigenous social workers who are listening and uh, many might be thinking, but, um, but what can I do? What can I do in this space, right? Um, and what struck me from just what you were saying, Danika, was that um, supporting those Indigenous colleagues of ours in their practice um, has to be one of the most collegial things that we can do. Absolutely. Absolutely. It's also um, owning a bit of your own space of um, teaching yourself 
um, rather than um, seeing it as a, oh, I'm going to go and ask my Aboriginal colleague, she'll tell me what to do or she'll tell me how to be or or what she wants me to do. It's about educating yourself in this space um, just as much as making sure relationships are really strong with Aboriginal community and your Aboriginal colleagues as well. Um, but it is it is more than just asking your Aboriginal colleague um, what to do. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, because that's probably the tendency a lot of the time, I would imagine. But but then you're putting that person right back in that same position again, aren't you? Absolutely. That when if you know if I have a colleague coming come up to me, say like. Um, NADOC week is coming or we may have already been in NADOC week and I have a colleague came up and um and says oh hey Danica what um you know hey Danica what are we actually um doing for NADOC I often sort of go hey you know and I, I have to really sit and 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 you know have this discussion but I also have to have the discussion of going actually it's it's all of us need to do this not just me because I'm an Aboriginal woman yeah um, yeah yeah Let's put it on the agenda and talk about it like we talk everything else out. Everything else, absolutely. And and how, you know, that takes away from my cultural load um, and also it makes me feel and makes also the, the organisation but also it makes Aboriginal community feel like that that it matters because it does. Yeah, that's exactly right. That's exactly right. And if you're ever doubting whether it matters or not, I think the stories that this social worker has shared has shown that, right? But yeah. actually, this is where it matters to the people, to the people we work with every day. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Well, that's awesome. And I know as well we've often spoken um, in this space around the humility that you need to take on when you're approaching these sorts of situations and practice contexts and just kind of owning what you don't know as well and being proactive about resolving that. Yeah, um, I think it was really beautiful in regards to this this social worker, how she introduced herself and which then made um, that client feel like he was able to then go, yep, okay, I'm safe now. I, I'm, you know, I can trust that um, she's an Aboriginal woman so she knows who I am and they exchanged that. And I think this is sometimes as a non-Indigenous um, social worker, I'll often be asked, how, how am I to meet this space if, um, if I'm not an Indigenous person? And often I will you know, have a discussion about asking them where they're from, what are their cultural ties, and for them to feel really comfortable in owning that. Um, I find as a non-Indigenous person, you know, people that I work alongside, often when I ask, hey, where are you from? What, you know, what is a bit of your story about your identity? It's often a space where there's a bit of a umming and ahhing of going, oh, actually, I've never actually been asked this. So I think this this is something, even this is small aspect that, you know, all social workers out there, um, you know, ask yourself, who, who are you guys? Where are you from? And then start to practice this in your conversations when meeting people. Yeah, it's that really common thing where social work students in when they first come into the degree and they meet this idea of culture and often when you have like white Australian social work students who are often quite young and they'll say, oh, I don't have a culture, right? And you actually have to break that down and have a conversation around that because culture means so much more than just diversity, what makes you diverse or what makes you different. Yeah, absolutely. 
and and having that really um, solid self-reflective practice because also um, as as you go throughout your own practice you create new identity and identity grows but also with age it does as well so your your answer today might be something that then changes in say five years time as well um, and and that's an okay space yeah and actually having the confidence to tap into that and the humility to say okay I need to actually explore that for myself first so that then mm. I can relate to others with an with a humility and an openness about where they're from Absolutely. And, and on that note, it's okay to also admit to say, actually, I still am on this journey. I, I still haven't reached what feels really solid for me in regards to my identity and my culture yet. But hey, you know, I'm, I'm loving hearing about yours. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So now let's go back to um, the focus being on the client and let's yes. talk about you a bit more. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I love that. That's good. Yeah. <laughs> Awesome. Oh, it's so good to have this conversation with you, Danika. I've so appreciated you coming along and sharing as well. It's great. Thank you so much. That's all right. Before we say goodbye, um, if anybody is has heard any terminology or any um, language that's been used in this episode that they're not familiar with, then we're going to put a resource up on um, our website in the show notes at socialworkstories.com uh, and um, hopefully that will help people, Danika, get proactive about educating themselves and leaning a bit more into this space, which would be really awesome. Absolutely. And, and share your process with people as well. Yeah, be a bit vulnerable about what you don't know. I love it. Yes. I feel like that's the constant journey I'm on on this podcast, so that's good. (laughs) (laughs) Wonderful, Uh, wonderful. I know. All right. Um, Well, also, everyone, get onto Twitter and Instagram and all the different ways you can contact us, SOWK Stories Pod and um, socialworkstories.com. Send us a line. If you've got a story you'd like to record for us on a voice memo, then pop it down to us and we would love to um, hear what sort of practice is happening wherever you are. Uh, from and engaging in your um, beautiful client groups with and hoping everybody is taking care of themselves at this time we'll see Liz again next time but Danika thank you so so much great to have you with us absolutely yeah no it's been fun thanks so much see you next time all right bye everyone see you later